Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is called The Widowed Prophet. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November 8, 2015. The Widow's Mite is a classic gospel story, a go-to for churches during stewardship season. Who hasn't heard the moving account of the widow who slips quietly into the temple, drops her meager offering into the treasury, and slips away? Who hasn't squirmed when a well-meaning pastor saddles the story to its inevitable so-what question? If a poor widow can give her sacrificial bit for the Lord's work, how can we, so comfortably wealthy by comparison, not give much, much more? I'll admit it, I have squirmed, but not because the question indicts my giving. I've squirmed because this woman's might haunts me. Her story is harder-edged than I'd like to admit. And yet something in me doesn't want her reduced to a moral or exploited for the sake of capital campaigns and annual budgets. I wish I knew her name. I wish I knew for sure that her real-life fierceness exceeded the piety we've imposed on her. I hope, I hope, she died with dignity. Died? Yes, died. She died, probably mere days after she dropped those two coins into the temple treasury. In case that's a surprise, consider again what Jesus said about her as she left the temple that day. She, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. As far as I can tell from reading the Gospels, Jesus was not given to exaggeration. If he says the woman gave everything she had, well, she gave everything she had. We know she was an impoverished widow in first-century Palestine, a woman living on the margins of her society. She had no safety net, no husband to advocate for her, no pension to draw from, no social status to hide behind. She was vulnerable in every single way that mattered, two pennies short of the end. If I'm getting the timing right, Jesus died four days after the events in the story. I wonder if the widow did, too. Here's what makes me squirm. What does it mean to applaud a destitute woman who gave her last two cents to the temple and then slipped away to starve? Is this really a story of selflessness, or is it a cautionary tale about naivete? Should we cheer or weep? Let's complicate the question further. St. Mark prefaces the story of the widow with an account of Jesus blasting the religious leaders of his day for their greed, pomposity, and crass exploitation of the poor. Beware of the scribes, Jesus tells his followers. They devour widows' houses and, for the sake of appearances, say long prayers. Their piety, in other words, is a sham, and the religious institution they govern is corrupt, not in any way reflective of the God the psalmist calls a father of orphans and protector of widows. Indeed, in the days leading up to the widow's last gift, Jesus offers one scathing critique after another of the economic and political exploitation he witnesses all around him. He makes a mockery of Roman pomp and circumstance when he processes into Jerusalem on a donkey's back. He cleanses the temple's money-mongering with a whip. He refuses to answer the chief priests, scribes, and elders when they demand to know the source of his authority. He confounds the religious, the religious leaders on taxes, indicts them with a scathing parable about a vineyard and a murdered son, defeats them on the question of the resurrection, and bewilders them with riddles about his Davidic ancestry. So why on earth would he turn around and praise a woman for endangering her already endangered life to support an institution he condemns? The simple answer is, he doesn't. Read the story carefully. He doesn't. Centuries of stewardship sermons notwithstanding, Jesus never commends the widow, applauds her self-sacrifice, or invites us to follow in her footsteps. 
he simply notices her and tells his disciples to notice her too. This is a moment in the story when I'd give anything to hear Jesus' tone of voice. Is he heartbroken as he tells his disciples to peel their eyes away from the rich folks and glance in her direction instead? Is he outraged? Is he resigned? What does it mean to him, mere seconds after he's described the temple leaders as devourers of widows' houses, to witness just such a widow being devoured, and worse, participating in her own devouring? Here's a telling postlude. Immediately after the widow leaves the temple, Jesus leaves too, and as he does, an odd disciple invites Jesus to admire the temple's mammoth stones and impressive buildings. Jesus' response is quick and cutting. Not one of these stones will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. Ouch. I wonder if the widow is still on Jesus' mind as he predicts the destruction of the temple. He has just watched a trusting woman give her all to an indefensible institution, one that refuses to protect the poor. No edifice steeped in such injustice will stand. Back to my earlier question. Should we cheer or weep in the face of the story? Or, here's a third alternative. Should we call out, as Jesus did, any form of religiosity that manipulates the vulnerable into self-harm and self-destruction. Jesus notices the widow. He sees what everyone else is too busy, too grand, too spiritual, and too self-absorbed to see. For me, this is the only redemptive part of the story, that Jesus' eyes are ever on the small, the insignificant, the hidden. What did Jesus notice? I don't know for sure, but I'll hazard some guesses. I think he noticed the widow's courage. I imagine it took quite a bit of courage for her to make her gift alongside the rich with their fistfuls of coins, even more to allow the last scraps of her security to fall out of her palms, and more still to swallow panic, swallow desperation, swallow the entirely human desire to cling to life no matter what, and face her end with hope. I think Jesus noticed her dignity. Surely she had to steal herself when widowhood rendered her worthless, a person marked expendable even in the temple she loved. Surely she had to trust in the face of all the evidence piled up around her that her tiny gift had value in God's eyes. Finally, I think Jesus noticed her vocation. Whether she knew it or not, the widow's action in the temple that day was prophetic. She was a prophet in the sense that her costly offering amounted to a holy denunciation of injustice and corruption. Without speaking a word, she spoke God's word in the ancient tradition of Isaiah, Elijah, Jeremiah, and other Old Testament prophets. But she was also prophetic in the messianic sense because her self-sacrifice prefigured Jesus's. Perhaps what Jesus noticed was kinship, her story mirroring his. The widow gave everything she had to serve a world so broken it killed her. Days later, Jesus gave everything he had to redeem, restore, and renew that world. For books this week, we review shared stories. <clears throat> Rival Tellings, Early Encounters of Jews, Christians, and Muslims by Robert C. Gregg. Many people have observed how the Abrahamic religions of Jews, Christians, and Muslims share important similarities. All three faiths are monotheistic. All three share a kinship with Ishmael. And all three are text-centered religions. In fact, observed Robert Gregg, there are 27 sacred stories that are shared in the Hebrew Bible, the Christian Bible, and the Quran. Greg, Professor of Religious Studies and Classics Emeritus at Stanford University since 1987, and a specialist in religious competition in the late Roman, early medieval period in the Mediterranean and Levant, explores in depth five of these shared stories, Cain and Abel, Sarah and Hagar, Joseph and Potiphar's wife, 
Jonah and the whale, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Each story begins with a brief preview, proceeds to a 100-page analysis, and concludes with a comparative summary. Greg shows how the three traditions differently heard, read, and used these same sacred stories from the 1st to the 16th centuries. As you would expect, much of the book explores the work of the text interpreters, storytellers, scholars, preachers, and teachers, but he also considers the artistic contributions of a stunning breadth of image makers. The book contains over 50 plates of paintings, illuminated manuscripts, sculptures, sarcophagi, gems, cups and bowls, furniture, mosaics, and architecture. It is a breathtaking combination of the verbal and the visual. The trialogue between all these meaning-seekers pushed and pulled in different directions. On the one hand, the sacred stories helped to form the internal development of each tradition, and in particular their claims to a unique identity. Telling, retelling, and refashioning sacred narratives, writes Greg, were intentional efforts at reinforcing each community's core beliefs, codes of behavior, and modes of worship. On the other hand, the shared stories also functioned to differentiate and draw boundaries, to oppose and repudiate, to confront one's religious competitors. That is, the interpreters sought to defend their respective faiths' belief systems against attacks, and whenever possible, to score victories over their opponents' arguments. It's enlightening to realize just how much believers knew about and interacted with alternate visions of their own stories. And thus the scandal of historical particularity. The oft-heard and patronizing idea that Jews, Christians, and Muslims mean the same thing when they tell their sacred stories is precisely what they don't do. Yes, the three traditions share the same sacred stories, but they also lived by rival interpretations of them. Greg, who was also dean of religious life at Stanford for 12 years and is an ordained Episcopal priest, concludes with a provocative suggestion. Perhaps interreligious conversations in our era would more honestly proceed by taking up difficult and irreconcilable variances in belief and practices, work toward understanding, even appreciation of these. Notions of an essential and unbreakable familial closeness and concord that enwraps Jews, Christians, and Muslims are romantic and also historically false. For movies, we review Steve Jobs, The Man and the Machine. The public just can't get enough of re-mythologizing their hero, Steve Jobs, or so book publishers and movies, movie producers hope. This documentary film by Alex Gibney is one of three new works about the Apple co-founder that came out in 2015. He's collected the obligatory archival footage and interviews with insiders. There's also the biodrama that was released a few weeks after Gibney's film, Danny Boyle's Steve Jobs, which received praise from Steve Wozniak, who helped as a consultant. Then there's a new biography by the Jobs insider, Brent Schlender, Becoming Steve Jobs, The Evolution of a Reckless Upstart into a Visionary Leader, which tries to move beyond what he thinks are negative stereotypes. I'm not sure there's much more to say about Jobs after Walter Isaacson's 2011 biography, Steve Jobs. <coughs> Apple's current CEO, Tom C Tim Cook, a keeper of the Kool-Aid, calls both new films opportunistic. For me, Jobs is a case study in the distinction made by David Brooks between resume virtues and eulogy virtues, and also a reminder that every person is more than their worst flaws. Finally, <clears throat> for poems this week, we read Walter Brueggemann's Dreams and Nightmares. Last night as I lay dreaming, I had a dream so fair. I dreamed of the holy city, well-ordered and just. I dreamed of a garden of paradise well-being all around in a good water supply. I dreamed of disarmament and forgiveness and caring embrace for all those in need. I dreamed of a coming time when death is no more.
Last night, as I lay sleeping, I had a nightmare of sins unforgiven. I had a nightmare of landmines still exploding and maimed children. I had a nightmare of the poor left unloved, of the homeless left unnoticed, <clears throat> of the dead left ungrieved. I had a nightmare of quarrels and rages and wars, great and small. When I awoke, I found you still to be God, presiding over the day and night with serene sovereignty, for dark and light are both alike to you. At the break of day, we submit to you our best dreams and our worst nightmares, asking that your healing mercy should override threats, that your goodness will make our nightmares less toxic and our dreams more real. Thank you for visiting us with newness that overrides what is old and deathly among us. Come among us this day, dream us toward health and peace. We pray in the real name of Jesus, who exposes our fantasies. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November 8th, 2015. I'm Debbie Thomas.